A dire warning this morning from climate experts. A UN panel says governments around the world must take rapid action to curb rising temperatures, or else millions around the world face future disaster. Well, they're basically saying that the very livability of our planet is at stake, not in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but right now. Hurricane Maria has made landfall on Puerto Rico. Now, of course, we know that Hurricane Harvey caused a lot of damage along the coast with the driving rain and the heavy winds. Maria is the first Category 4 to hit there in nearly a century. Where the largest ice sheet in the northern hemisphere is simply melting away. There really is a tragedy unfolding in Indonesia. Rescuers there digging through destroyed buildings, through huge mounds of debris for any survivors. Thousands of acres of land have been burnt to a cinder. Hundreds of homes and businesses destroyed. Whole communities wrecked in the most lethal wildfire storm since records began. As floodwaters surpass record levels, the Brunswickers are rushing to save the place they cherish most. This may be the largest, most impactful flood that we have seen in generations. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. You cannot make a choice anymore between what's good for the environment and what's good for the economy. It has to be top priority. Climate change is real. We're seeing it. We're seeing it in floods. We're seeing it in ice uh, So I think that we're going to be able to send a strong message to the international community that we're going to be stepping up when it comes to climate change as a country. Climate change is a growing concern. The planet has witnessed record-breaking natural disasters over the past several years. The global temperature is warming, polar ice caps are melting, and sea levels are rising. Those effects were felt close to home when springtime flooding devastated parts of New Brunswick in April. The rising St. John River destroyed homes and shut down roads in the Fredericton region, resulting in millions of dollars of damage. The timeline to limit a climate change catastrophe is short. Last month, the world's leading scientists have warned that there are only 12 years for global warming to be kept at a maximum of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Extending beyond that would significantly increase the risk of drought, floods, and extreme poverty for millions of people. The authors of the report by the UN Intergovernmental Commission on Climate Change say urgent and unprecedented changes are needed, or the planet will reach the point of no return. You're listening to Sidebar. A production brought to you by the Brunswickin and CHSR. I'm Alexander Silverman. And I'm Isabel Legier. We're going to take you beyond the headlines once a month. Focusing on issues in Fredericton, New Brunswick. This month's episode is on the politics of climate change. We'll speak with an expert who has dark predictions for the future. We really are confronting the end of civilization as we know it. We'll talk about Canada's controversial carbon tax and break down what that policy means for New Brunswick. People actually don't think they personally contribute to climate change. We'll also hit the streets to see what New Brunswickers think. I think they should be doing something now about it instead of just discussing it. And we'll talk with David Kuhn, the leader of the New Brunswick Green Party, about his view on climate change dialogue in the legislature. It's terrible because Premier Higgs seems to be going in the entirely other direction. 
How will climate change impact New Brunswick? And will the planet be able to meet the target created by the UN in just 12 years? To answer those questions, we invited Don Wright to our show. Wright is a political scientist at the University of New Brunswick who closely studies the politics of climate change. The report recently released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change describes what the world will look like if it warms by only 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. Meeting that target would require an economic transition that the panel considers to be unprecedented. Can we adopt in time? The short answer is no, I don't think we can, because no jurisdiction has been able to get off carbon. It is a cheap and efficient source of energy, but of course in the long run it's a tremendously inefficient source of energy, given the concentrations of uh, GHGs in the atmosphere, global warming, extreme weather events, sea level rise, etc., The IPCC report that you cite was sobering, to be sure. The effects of a 1.5 degrees C scenario are off the charts. But the Paris Agreement that was reached in 2015, the Paris Agreement itself says that the commitments of the signatories are not sufficient to meet a 2 degree C scenario. So I fear that 1.5 degrees C is impossible to meet. 2 degrees C likewise almost certainly possible uh, to meet. We are looking at assuming that the countries can meet their commitments under Paris. We're still looking at a 3 to 3.5 degree C scenario by the end of this century, and that is staggering. Moreover, every pathway to a 1.5 degree C scenario talks about carbon dioxide removal, carbon uh, capture and sequestration, Uh, And these technologies are in their infancy or non-existent. So we're banking our future on technology that does not yet exist, the idea of being able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or capture it and sequester it at source. So there's a lot of discussion around how climate change and rising global temperatures will impact the world at large, but how can we expect to see this impact the weather, economy, and way of life in New Brunswick? Let's look at the first statement, that it will impact the world at large. Yes, it certainly will. And some areas are affected right now in real time. This is not a problem that's 10 years away, 15 years away, 50 years away, or turn of the century. Uh, It is happening now. Uh, Some areas are affected more than others, primarily because they're low-lying. Right now, the real problem is sea level rise and saltwater intrusion and saltwater corrosion. So places like southeast Florida experience horrific floods. Places like Bangladesh, a very different jurisdiction, experiencing tremendous uh, flooding. The far north, the Canadian Arctic, because of complicated phenomena known as Arctic amplification or polar amplification, it's warming at twice the rate. So we're seeing a series of cascading problems there with uh, summer sea ice melt, with flooding, uh, and with permafrost melt. So the far north is at the front lines of climate change. Different locations will have different experiences from droughts, heat waves, to flooding and melting. But let's look at New Brunswick for a minute. Well, some of those things that are happening around the world can happen and are happening to New Brunswick. Certainly, we're seeing greater rates of sea level rise and seeing greater rates of coastal erosion. This is a tremendous problem for infrastructure roadways in particular. Uh, We're also seeing warming rivers. Salmon, the Atlantic salmon, requires uh, cold water. But as the rivers warm, it makes, puts a greater stress on the Atlantic salmon and puts greater stress on the population of Atlantic salmon. We're seeing the same thing happening, happening in the Bay of Fundy. Waters rise. As the waters warm, native species are migrating out of, of the Bay of Fundy. 
Also the forests. New Brunswick, as you know, Acadian forest, which is a mix of some boreal species and some Acadian species. As it warms, those species of trees that require colder temperatures will move further north and maybe move altogether outside of New Brunswick. And finally, flooding. I think we can expect more flooding. That's because the Bay of Fundy is rising. The St. John River flows into the Bay of Fundy. It will have a harder time discharging into the Bay of Fundy and so will back up. And so the experts who study the St. John River are very concerned about increased flooding in the spring. And finally, we're going to see more precipitation events, and that's actually measurable. New Brunswick between 2005 and 2015 had more significant rain events defined as rain events of 50 millimeters or more over a 24-hour period than at any other point in recorded New Brunswick history. We are experiencing climate change in real time in New Brunswick. You mentioned that some of these climate goals are based around technology that has yet to exist. So what are the biggest obstacles to curbing rising global temperatures at this point in time? Well, the biggest obstacles are our political class. They're letting us down. They say all the right things. Climate change is a problem. Let's get serious about climate change. But then, of course, they proceed with a business-as-usual model. Uh, and that doesn't apply only to politicians in New Brunswick. It applies to politicians across Canada at the federal level, at uh, other provincial jurisdictions. And it certainly applies across the globe. It's a script they read from. Climate change is an urgent problem, comma, about which we have to do nothing. And we see that our political class, time and time again, pursuing a growth agenda. The problem is we cannot continue to grow our economy and uh, curb emissions at the same time. It's a contradiction. And if you want to understand the politics of climate change, you have to understand that contradiction. Emissions will rise as we pursue a growth model. It's as simple as that. But no politician wants to go before the electorate and say, I want a zero growth economy. I want to contract the economy. I say no to economic development in the in the tar sands of Alberta. I say no to pipeline extensions across the country. I say leave it in the ground. Well, how far would that politician get? Maybe the corner store, right? They're not going to get anywhere. And so every politician pursues, as I say, a jobs growth economic agenda, but that is contradictory, incompatible uh, to and with a robust climate change agenda. Would you say this is a government problem, a business problem, or a general societal problem? It's all of the above. Who among your listeners wants to stop driving a car? Who among your listeners never wants to fly again? Who among your listeners wants to stop fast fashion? Well, not many. Everybody likes going to the mall and buying a new sweater for 20 bucks. Indeed, that's one of your larger carbon footprints is your clothing budget. Your largest carbon footprint is your transportation. So we're all guilty. We're all trapped in the logic of carbon. And that's uh, at the level of people. It's at the level of our elected elites. And it's certainly at the level of business. They're trapped in the logic of growth. It's an institutional requirement. Short-term profits. Short-term profits are an institutional requirement. Well, how do you generate short-term growth? Well, you take it out of the ground. You extract it. You turn it into a commodity. You sell it. What steps need to be taken and what can individuals do? I fear I'm quite pessimistic on this. We all have a role to play and yet we're not playing it. We have to stop using carbon. It has to be left in the ground. We know that. The experts tell us that. And yet we are trapped in the logic of carbon, unable to 
get out of it, unable to leave it in the ground. There is no magic carbon switch. You can just stop using carbon. Moreover, even if there was a carbon switch and you stopped using carbon, we are now in the situation of positive feedback loops. Uh, the planet is warming on its own. It's not rocket science. For example, I talked about the melting permafrost. As the permafrost melts, it releases CO2 and CH4 methane. Those greenhouse gases warm the planet. As the planet warms, permafrost melts, releases more carbon dioxide, more methane. So that's called a positive feedback loop. So even if we found the carbon switch, we are locked in uh, to a two degree C scenario, if not more because of those positive feedback loops. We can all stop driving. We can all make an ethical choice to stop uh, taking planes. We can all decide, you know what, I don't need 15 pairs of jeans in my drawer. I don't need 32 t-shirts. Uh, we can all make those decisions. We can convert our incandescent lights to LEDs, light-emitting diodes, or compact fluorescence to see if we can do that. But I fear that's going to make a drop in the bucket. So the question really isn't what can we do as individuals, it's what we can do as citizens together. And we can demand of our elites to stop this madness. And, and elites will respond to collective political action. And you can write the premier, and the premier's going to say thank you very much. But if uh, there is large-scale collective action and large-scale collective disobedience, well, there will be a response. Is that the only way out? Well, yes, because I fear that those technologies that the IPCC report was talking about are just non-existent. It's like hoping for a unicorn to appear. Those technologies will not solve our problem. And the pathway to 1.5 C degree C scenario is dependent on those technologies. So there has to be collective political action. I'm sure I don't know how we get out of that trap, but I do know that change always comes up. Historical change always comes from the bottom, from people rising up and saying enough is enough. This is, I fear, another moment in, in human history. Because we really are, and again, I don't mean to be pessimistic, uh, we really are confronting the end of civilization as we know it. The species will survive, Homo sapiens will survive, survive under uh, the conditions of civilization that we've grown accustomed to in the last century. I don't think so. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Listen, it's my pleasure. I could talk about this for hours. We went to the King's Place Mall in downtown Fredericton to ask New Brunswickers if they believe in climate change. We noticed that many were uneducated on the topic. Most people we spoke with said that climate change exists and is a serious problem, but couldn't explain why. Take a listen. Do you believe in climate change? Yes. Yeah? Uh, why do you believe in it? Well, it's uh, something we have. Yes. Yes, and why is that? Well, because uh, the ice melt in the... Or, you know, in the Arctic and... I've heard of it. You've heard of it? Do you believe that it's a real thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Uh, and why is that? Because when you watch TV shows about nature, it shows that, uh, that nature, like polar bears, can be extinct, and other animals, even certain, uh, like, cats. Uh, I believe yeah. they are. Yeah. Yeah? And why do you believe that? Because the weather has changed. different than when I was a kid. I know that. How important of an issue do you think it is for us to acknowledge it right now? It's a really important issue to be. I think they should be doing something now about it instead of just discussing it. I don't know. Pretty serious. I don't know. Actually, I, I never really thought of it. <laughs> do you know of any ways that we can help prevent climate change? 
climate change? Well, I believe we shouldn't build so many buildings or cities. That doesn't help matters any, because that's where the animals live. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I guess fuels and things like that, I've heard that, you know, that uh, might make a difference. we got to stop doing a lot of stuff that we have been, which we don't really need to, like the coal and burning coal and all that stuff. We don't need to do that no more. Like, there's alternatives, a lot of different alternatives, and a lot of stuff they can do, but they don't do. We're going down uh, the wrong path, I think, with our planet. We have to keep it clean. We're not doing that. But there's ways we could turn it around. If I'm not sure how, but I know we could. The controversial federal carbon tax has dominated climate politics in Canada over the last year. The plan includes putting a price per ton on emissions from fossil fuel sources. In late October, the federal government rejected New Brunswick's approach to adopting the tax and imposed a new one. And the new progressive conservative minority government says it will join a multi-province court challenge of the carbon tax. To break down the politics of the carbon tax, we decided to speak with Louise Como. She's director of the Environment and Sustainable Development Research Center at the University of New Brunswick. Como also sits on the federal government's expert panel on climate change adaptation. Could you explain to us the federal government's carbon tax plan and the goals behind that policy? The goal is to ensure that as a consumer, as a business, we pay for the social cost of climate change. They call it the social cost of carbon because every time we burn a liter of gasoline or charge up combustion of coal at Baldoon or burn oil at Colson Cove, those are our two main polluters in the electricity system, drive our vehicles, use heating oil in our house, we're generating carbon pollution. Every time we do that, we add to the greenhouse gases in the air that are changing the climate. The idea here, strongly supported by economists, is that by putting the price of carbon pollution into the products that we buy, we learn as consumers and businesses to buy those products that are the least polluting. It's a basic idea, and the idea behind carbon pricing is to start to get consumers and businesses in all of our decision-making to think about carbon, to learn about carbon, and to make choices that reduce the amount of carbon pollution in the air. And how effective would you say that carbon pricing is? If you ask an economist, they would say it's very effective. It depends on two functions, the price itself, so how much the price of a product changes as a result of carbon pricing, and uh, whether or not there's a schedule for increasing that over time. So the federal system is in two parts, and it includes those two elements. It has a price, and it has a schedule for increasing over time. it's applied differently to uh, large industry and consumers, but the basic premise is that starting January 1st, 2019, there will be a $20 charge per ton of greenhouse gas emissions. That will rise $10 each year, so that by 2022, it's at $50 a ton. 
Some will argue that price is low in terms of changing behaviors. It will generate, say, a level of a litre of gas, for example, about four and a half cents a litre next year, rising to 11 cents a litre in 2022. We see those kinds of price jumps all the time. But knowing that the price is there and knowing that it will increase over time does change behaviour, but not enough on its own. If you had the full cost of climate change incorporated into these rules, if you will, we'd have a price of about $150, $200 a tonne. If you were trying to change behavior with that one measure, nobody is. The federal climate plan and any provincial plan also includes regulations, making buildings more efficient, cars more efficient, regulating other pollutants like methane, which is also a greenhouse gas. And so the idea is that a comprehensive climate plan includes regulations and a carbon price. And together, they send enough of a signal to help us change our behaviors and move us toward the transition and the diversification from fossil fuels into more renewable energy and using our energy uh, much more efficiently than we do today. How will this policy reduce consumer carbon emissions if tax rebates are given back? Where would the incentive be for us to reduce <laughs> yeah, our emissions? That's a great question. So um, think of you going to the pump and you're buying your gasoline at the pump. You are paying the price of carbon at that moment. When you buy a product or if you're buying a product from an industry that has it paying a carbon price that will flow down into the cost of products, you are paying the carbon charge every time you make a choice to buy a product that is polluting. The rebate doesn't come at that moment. The rebate comes at the time you do your tax return. So there's a separation between the price, you will pay the price, um, and the rebate uh, that you get. You could think of it as a program. People who work on the policy have argued for two approaches. One is you raise the price on carbon and then you reduce other taxes. So that you could ask the question in the same way. Why would you reduce some taxes? Does that undermine carbon price? No, it doesn't. You still have the carbon price, but you can use the revenues from that to reduce income tax and uh, corporate taxes to mean that the economy itself doesn't have an overall increase in taxes. It's a shift, a tax shift. You can also take carbon pricing money and put it into programs. So to create incentives for retrofitting your house, for buying electric cars, for things like that. In this case, the federal government chose not to go that route, but instead to give the money back directly to households. There's also some money available for small to medium-sized enterprises so that they can access resources to help them become more efficient and for what we call the mush sector municipalities universities schools and hospitals the federal government chose to give it to households because most of the concerns around carbon pricing are focused on raising cost of living and so by giving it direct to households it's to help people manage those cost of living concerns the important dimension is that that money should be used to help households be more efficient. The whole point with the carbon price is if you're smart, you never pay it, right? You never pay it because you bought the next time around. If you need a car, you bought the energy efficient car. If you're able, you maybe bought a plug-in hybrid or an electric car, or you took your rebate and put that with NB Power incentives. You got more insulation in your home. You got more windows uh, that are more energy efficient. You put insulation in your basement, things like that. The idea is to not pay uh, the carbon charge. And so if you choose to pay it, then 
Okay. How informed is the general public on this plan, and what are some of the common misconceptions that are out there? So one of the big misconceptions is that people actually don't think they personally contribute to climate change. We still, after 30 years of discussion and education, have failed to help people understand that they personally, as well as socially, contribute to climate change. Um, for example, emissions in our province, about 28% comes from transportation. We all contribute to that. Personal vehicles are about 11% of the province's emissions. That's a lot. The food we eat, if we're eating beef, if we're eating lamb, those all contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, both because of the way farming is done, but also the animal itself, it emits methane. If we reduced our our diet in terms of some of the red meat that we eat, we could contribute to reducing emissions in the province. About 5% of our emissions in the province comes from um, what they call enteric animals. And we could also contribute to reducing emissions by not flying. Uh, We know there's a direct relationship between income and flying, especially for leisure. It's about 8% of global emissions. And most people are traveling to faraway places. And it's 1.9 tons per person per transatlantic flight. There's a lot that individuals could do, but the misconception is that people don't contribute to it, that it is the big polluters. And that's true as well. In New Brunswick, the biggest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions uh, is NB Power, which is electricity for us in our houses. We burn coal at uh, Beldoon, and I mentioned oil at Colson Cove. Irving is also very responsible for a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions, both because of the refinery. Three million tons of emissions come from that plant, one plant in New Brunswick. Pulp and paper contributes several thousand as well. Why was the Liberal government's plan rejected? I'll just be blunt. New Brunswick blew it. They really, really blew it. As policy people who work on this issue, we really strongly recommended that New Brunswick take a different approach, and they chose not to. So now that it's kind of the cat is out of the bag, if you will, the new government has been briefed and is publicly speaking about it, I can tell you what they did that was not acceptable to the federal government. The previous government, what they did was in 2015, they increased the excise tax on gasoline, two cents. They argued that that was, if you will, a carbon price, right? That um, they'd already increased um, the price on fuel and that they didn't feel New Brunswickers could take another increase. They said to the federal government, we will let you regulate industry. So let's take industry off. You'll do that. We don't have the capacity. For the provincial portion of the excise tax, we will rename it, the portion of it that equals what the carbon price would be. We'll rename that a carbon price. And we'll create a climate fund, and we will identify what spending we do in government that we can say has some climate benefit, and we'll try to balance it out. So there was no incremental spending and no incremental increase in price on the consumer side of it that they would see. The point for the federal government was that every jurisdiction had to have an incremental price. And the federal government gave New Brunswick many opportunities to respond with a different proposal because what they were risking was if they didn't do it themselves, they lost access to all the money, right? So now New Brunswick doesn't have access to the money through any government programs. The money is coming back to the province as promised, but to households. And I think we need the public to 
become engaged and not see this as just a carbon price that will cost me and then to reject it, but to see it as an opportunity for New Brunswick. And we definitely need young people coming out and saying, we want a climate plan for New Brunswick that gets us off fossil fuels by 2030 to create the future here that we want. As you just brought up, the new progressive conservative government is taking the approach of joining a multi-province lawsuit against this plan. What are the next steps? The government has said that it will uh, apply to intervene in the case by the deadline, which is November 30th. We've not seen, of course, anything public yet in terms of how they will argue their case. We will hear soon uh, that environmental groups will be joining the case to uh, defend the federal government's right to impose a carbon charge. We should hear about that by the end of the month. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. As a member of the Conservation Council of New Brunswick for 28 years, David Kuhn has an understanding of climate change through a biological point of view. He's also the leader of the New Brunswick Green Party and the MLA for Fredericton South. We spoke with Kuhn to get a clearer understanding of the state of dialogue on climate politics in New Brunswick. The Green Party's presence grew quite a bit in the legislature, this provincial election tripling in size, going from just yourself to a caucus of three. To what extent would you attribute that rise in support to growing concerns around climate change? I think that's uh, definitely part of it, particularly in those two ridings where the new MLAs have come from, Memorial Cook Tantramar, which uh, includes communities very close to the Bay of Fundy, essentially on the edge of the Bay of Fundy or their tidal rivers. So they've seen flooding and they're protected by old Acadian dikes, which aren't going to last very long as sea level rises and storm uh, surges get bigger. So there's a real concern there. Plus, of course, Mount A is university, or Sackville's university town, so so there's that uh, element. It's got a fairly younger population of people who've stayed on. Kent North is quite a green-thinking riding, so uh, it's very interesting. Before there was really green, they were green in a way, which goes way back in history as uh, an agriculturally-focused region of the province. So, so uh, yes, it played a role, but uh, certainly it wasn't the biggest role, I don't think. Uh, people are tired of the old uh, politics, tired of uh, things flipping back and forth between the Liberals and the Conservatives, and looking for something new where, where there's a party with a, a real vision that reflects uh, sort of the sense of where we need to go in our province, in our country, in our world. So the Progressive Conservative government's throne speech included a commitment to appoint a new legislative watchdog for climate change. Why do you think this position was created, and will it be effective? I don't know. It was a complete surprise. The idea is that they'd be a legislative commissioner, just like the Child and Youth Advocate, a watchdog for children and youth. And they haven't talked about it or elaborated on it. And so uh, I, I, I don't know what their intent was, but it certainly would be a great thing to have. It wouldn't be presumably that different from the environmental commissioner's that some other provinces have had, uh, which Doug Ford in Ontario just cut, but uh, also cut the Child Youth Advocate, interestingly enough, in Ontario. But yeah, it, uh, I think it'll be a good thing. What is the state of dialogue around climate change issues in the legislature right now? How willing are the other parties to speak about these issues, discuss them, and move forward with action? Well, it's terrible. It's terrible because Premier Higgs seems to be going in the entirely other direction, and that is championing developments that will increase our carbon footprint and release more carbon pollution and methane. His obsession with uh, developing shale gas and uh, trying to find some way of bringing bitumen across the 
the uh, country from Alberta to an export terminal run by Irving Oil. You know, this kind of new additional infrastructure is only going to mean further contributions to the problem, making the problem worse. So, and thank goodness uh, we're there because we're the ones talking about it. I'm actually the critic for the energy transition in in our caucus, and uh, that's what we need to start making is the energy transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, which means we're going to have to leave fossil fuels increasingly in the ground as we wean ourselves away. So we're not going to dig them all up, even though they're worth money. How can that change? What will it take to bring these issues to the forefront in the legislature? We're working hard on it. And I guess in a way, um, because of the premier's fascination with fracking and shale gas pipelines, he's kind of creating the environment for discussing this because what he's proposing and talking about is going to make climate change worse, make our carbon footprint bigger. He's also backed away from our long-standing provincial targets to cut our carbon pollution that are enshrined in our Climate Change Act in New Brunswick and making up some other target uh, based on some math from from what they're based on what they're doing in Ottawa, which is just irrelevant. So, you know, we will uh, be bringing forward various ideas and initiatives to expand our use of renewable energy. That is in their throne speech. So we'll focus on that, expand energy efficiency, see that the recommendations of the select committee that was an all-party committee of the legislature actually get adopted. There was good work there done and consultation with New Brunswickers in every corner of the province. And how do you expect that uh, climate change is going to impact New Brunswick? Well, it's already impacting New Brunswick. So it's causing health problems for New Brunswickers in the form of the growing incidence of Lyme disease, for example, because of the black-legged tick that's been able to move into New Brunswick as the climate has, has changed. It's obviously causing mental health problems for people in terms of anxiety about the future, what's going to happen with the growing crisis in the climate, as well as when people are find themselves in climate, in floods and other situations, intense storms caused by our changing climate that um, is really quite difficult mentally. So we're seeing that. We're seeing the intense storms, the increasingly expensive damage to people's homes, their property, to infrastructure like roads and highways. So it's here. Impact on crops, both in terms of the damage with late frosts or early frosts, I guess late frosts, late frosts, when the strawberries and blueberries or apple trees are in blossom, to potatoes being buried under the snow and can't be harvested. So The impacts are already stacking up, and this is just the very beginning. What are your thoughts on the provincial government's approach to the federal carbon tax, both under uh, the Gallant Liberal government, which involved diverting a portion of the existing gas tax, which was rejected, and the current approach by the PC minority government, which involves joining a multi-province lawsuit opposing this measure? The whole thing about the carbon tax has been a huge distraction from actually taking action on climate change to reduce our carbon pollution and begin the energy transition because in the end it takes away from what we really need to do like initiating the energy transition, like putting regulations in place on industry to require them in law to cut their their carbon pollution, like the oil refinery, for example, which is the largest single source of carbon pollution in New Brunswick. We just, under the Clean Air Act, put a regulation in place that requires them to reduce their carbon pollution. Instead, we've been spending endless, endless hours and days and months and years debating the carbon tax, which by itself is not going to make a huge difference. Our approach to the putting a price on carbon is, uh, yes, it sends a signal most significantly to larger industry because they're the most one, the 
ones that are most sensitive to price signals. But most importantly, it can generate revenue to put uh, recycle back to individuals and businesses, specifically to help them reduce their demand, their use of energy, their demand for energy, to help them convert to uh, uh, greener or renewable sources of energy to get their carbon footprints down. So. Gallant's plan was not to put a carbon tax in place at all. He just was repurposing gas tax, which was going to accomplish zero. Uh, um, now, so of course, uh, the, everyone's going to be paying a price on carbon in Canada as of January 1st. So we'll be doing that with the with the federal government putting it in place. And Premier Higgs' approach is to go to court on that, which is just a waste of our money. If he goes to court and loses, it's going to look ridiculous. If he doesn't go to court and they win, well then, you know, he, he didn't have to spend any money to get that answer because Ontario and Saskatchewan are in court doing this. The federal plan is to refund uh, that money back to individuals. Fine. Um, but that does mean that you're not going to get uh, revenue. Uh, there won't be revenue to directly uh, fund uh, programs that will help people become more energy efficient and adopt renewable energy. The history of, of the car- putting a price on carbon is interesting because it really came from big oil and multinational corporations that didn't want to be regulated. And they said, well, we have a better idea. Put a price on pollution and then we can you know, do the cheapest thing to reduce our emissions. And then they lobbied heavily to ensure that that price on pollution didn't apply to many of their emissions. So in Canada, the federal program applies to 100% of your emissions and my emissions, but to 20% of most industries' emissions, to 10% of some uh, some industries. So uh, for the coal plant at Beldoon, uh, they're only going to be charged for 10% of the carbon they emit. Before we even started arguing about a carbon tax, we started arguing about what the target should be since 1988. We've been arguing about what the target reduction target should be by province and in Canada. And, and then that target argument started to get uh, replaced by the argument over a carbon tax, yes or no, rather than actually taking action. What message do you have for New Brunswickers who are concerned about climate change? What should they do? They need to call, write, email the premier's office and let him know that they're concerned so that he knows this is an issue because he's pretending this is an issue that we have to address because it's being imposed on us by Ottawa. No, this is an issue that many New Brunswickers are concerned about and want to see us take action on, both in terms of making the energy transition and making sure the big uh, polluters uh, are subject to appropriate regulation to get their emissions down and to help deal with the consequences that we're increasingly already facing in New Brunswick, uh, whether it's better diagnosing and treating Lyme disease or uh, better protecting people from uh, and, and our infrastructure like our roads and our power services, uh, electrical grid from uh, the consequences of climate change in the form of crazy intense ice storms and rainstorms and flooding and, and, and the like. So I'm quite disappointed in the Premier um, uh, approach to this. It doesn't extend to everyone in his caucus. Uh, I think it's important, or even everyone in his cabinet. Uh, it's really important when people think about politics to understand that what a premier says doesn't necessarily reflect everyone in his government. So that's really important. So that he hears from the Brunswickers uh, that this actually is an important issue, uh, uh, and we need to act on it, and we need to do our part and not uh, and not head in the direction which he seems to be going, which is to uh, increase our contribution to the problem. All right. Thank you, David, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. <laughs> My pleasure. That was enjoyable. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode. We would love to hear your comments and thoughts on climate change. To leave us a comment by voicemail, give us a call at 506 999 
1-800-273-4993. And we might play it on our next episode. For December's show, we'll take a look at how homelessness is impacting the province. The tent camps that are popping up are popping up because people don't want to use shelters. This has been a production of The Brunswickin and CHSR. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Alexander Silverman. And I'm Isabella Gier. See you next month.